Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read the best business books. Read with us so you can become a better investor, manager, or entrepreneur. This month, we read Setting the Table, a 2006 autobiographical book on management in the hospitality industry by noted restaurateur Danny Meyer. It tells the story of Meyer building his restaurant empire and recounts many of the lessons he learned along the way. But before we get to the book, let's introduce ourselves. I'm David Short. I'm a product manager, former consultant. I'm Olson Hart. I have a toy company and I also do uh, litigation financing. I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. Okay, so before we get into the book itself, let's learn a little bit about the author. Who is Danny Meyer? Yeah, so Danny was born and raised in St. Louis in 1958. He was the son of two prominent families in town. His paternal grandfather ran a chemical company and his mother's father sold a business to Gillette for $20 million. So he was, you know, very privileged growing up. He got a crash course in hospitality, studying abroad in Rome and then working for his father's company as a tour guide in Italy, the sophomore year in college. And then his first job was at a TV station in Chicago. He was then a Cook County field coordinator for an independent presidential campaign against Carter and Reagan, and then moved to New York where he worked at Checkpoint, which was a company that made security tags for retail his grandfather had invested in. So he became fairly successful there. He was a top salesman and was earning over 100 grand a year in commissions covering the New York area, but he was passionate about restaurants. And so he enrolled in a restaurant management class. And he was also thinking about going to law school. And then he sort of had this dinner notoriously with his uncle where he said he was going to go to law school and he was really upset about it. And his uncle was just like, why don't you go open a restaurant? It's what you've always been born to do. So he quit his successful sales job to work as an assistant manager at Pesca. And he did that for about eight months uh, where he met his wife, who was a waitress there. And then he spent three and a half months studying cooking in Italy and France as a stage before opening his restaurant. Union Square Cafe in 1985. So at the time he was 25, he, or sorry, 27, he did so with $350,000 he had saved uh, as a salesman and $350,000 invested from his friends and family. And he's ultimately been incredibly successful opening fine dining establishments in New York. So Union Square Cafe was his only restaurant for a very long time. But he now, as of the writing of the book, he had 11 restaurants and had turned it into a, a conglomerate called Union Square Hospitality Group, which he continues to be the CEO of. And one of those 11 restaurants was Shake Shack, which is now uh, separately a publicly traded company with hundreds of locations worldwide and a $2.6 billion market cap. And a lot of his restaurants are based right in New York City. For our listeners who are familiar with New York, what are some of the restaurants that Danny Meyer has started that they might be familiar with? Gramercy Tavern, Blue Smoke, Union Square Cafe. Daily Provisions. He used to have a restaurant called, an Indian restaurant called Tabla, which I think is the only restaurant that he's ever opened that failed. Or I'm not sure if failed is the right word, but he closed it up after about 10 years. Uh, Shake Shack, obviously, all over NYC. The restaurants in the Museum of Modern Art, for those that have visited MoMA. Yeah, I think he has two. Uh, One at the Whitney and then one at MoMA, yeah. There are three restaurants inside MoMA. Uh, or really it's one restaurant, The Modern, and then there's a couple of cafes um, and also a cafe just for the employees. And then you're right, he also has some at Whitney as well, which didn't exist at the time of the the writing of this book. And then his most famous restaurant is 11 Madison Park, or I mean, probably Shake Shack actually, but 11 Madison Park is like a you know Michelin three-star restaurant. It's been rated you know the top restaurant in the world. 
Although I don't think he actually owns it anymore. I believe he sold it to the chef and the, the front of the house guy. So I think actually with Tabla shutting down and the sale of 11 Madison Park, I think it might have been a little bit of like a real estate situation where the deal for the original leasing of the space with 11 Madison Avenue came up. And so he sold the restaurant to the the chef and the, the front of the house guy and then let them take over. And I think Tabla may have just you know, gotten rented out to someone else. So that's a big part of the book is the the opening of those two restaurants simultaneously in the same space. And I actually worked in that building, 11 Madison Avenue for a couple of years. So it was uh, interesting uh, to walk past 11 Madison Park every day. But when I was reading this, I was like, what's Tabla? And that's apparently it closed like one year before I, I worked in that building. So that's why I didn't know what it was. And I want to ask you what these restaurants are like, but I'm wondering before we get into that, have either of you dined in these restaurants? Yeah, I've, I've dined at Probably uh, Union Square Cafe, Gramercy Tavern, 11 Madison Park, uh, Blue Smoke, Shake Shack a lot of times, The Modern. Yeah, I've, I've been to probably like half his restaurants. I've been to Gramercy Tavern a couple of times and then maybe that restaurant at the Whitney. Okay. And how would you describe his restaurants in general? I would say that most of them would be considered probably fine dining. That's I think that's accurate, except for Shake Shack and Blue Smoke. Is that right? I think they're pretty unique. Um, so I read some of your your pre-show notes and it sounds like well you haven't been to these restaurants Kopech, but uh the relatives you that you have that had didn't seem impressed i'm super impressed when i go to these places not because they're hoity-toity or because they're fine dining or because they have michelin stars but he does a bunch of different a bunch of different things like differently from other restaurants like for example uh at gramercy tavern there's no tipping which is in my opinion huge and i can go into why later on the menu there's a very subtle, but to me, important thing it, it, on the menu, it says that all the sparkling water, all the water that you get is complimentary. And it's like kind of like that Uber no tipping effect where, I don't know, at least for me, maybe it's because I'm a neurotic person, but whenever sparkling water is brought to my table, I'm always thinking in my head, like, am I being charged for this? <laughs> you know, is that like a $24 bottle of San Pellegrino? And just like putting it on the menu, it just like reduces my anxiety and it makes for a much more pleasant experience. And I think that this comment about his restaurants being different, it even applies to Shake Shack in a weird way. Like, I think it's a very special, interesting experience. And I think that the success he's had corroborates that. And, you know, that's a problem for me with the book is that did not come across to me in the book. Like, what is the experience of being a diner in one of his restaurants? Mm -hmm. Yes, there's going to the people are going to be really nice to you. That was clear to me. And they're going to say the right things at every point in your transaction, including both the maitre d', when the waiter, the even if the chef comes out, they're all going to say the right things. That was clear to me. But what is different about the restaurants from other restaurants beyond the fact of how you're treated by the employees was not clear to me. So Have policies in the restaurants been to was a not clear to me. I've not been to Shake Shack, actually. Okay. So maybe that's good that I'm kind of an outsider here so I can probe both of you a little bit. I would say that the number one thing of the enlightened hospitality thing, I think, is incredibly apparent when you spend time at these restaurants other than Shake Shack, where I think it is sliding a little bit. I think they have maybe grown a little bit too fast. Most Shake Shacks are very nice. It's not really fast food either, though. It does take more time. It does cost more money. And so it is a little bit better than other you know, fast food experiences. But I don't think you should really compare it to that. I just most my most recent Danny Meyer experience was at the Shake Shack at Penn Station. And honestly, the food was not that great. Like, I think they burned my burger. So that was my first really negative experience I'd had at a Danny Meyer restaurant. But that being said, 11 Madison Park is probably the third best meal I've had in my entire life. It was just an incredible experience. 
the place is beautiful, but also the staff is phenomenal, but not in like a pushy way. There's something about mm-hmm. the way that he talks about 51 percenters throughout, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. I think it really is different from the other fine dining experiences you might have. They are real people. They're not automatons that are fulfilling exact scripted language that every single person is going to say. It comes across that way a little bit in the book that you might think that these people are being scripted, but I think he gives examples of what they might say. It's not actually that they're going to say the exact same thing every time. It's that they're going to do a good job of making you feel welcome, heard, seen, or ignored if that's what you seem like you want also. I thought that was actually one of the more interesting things he talked about was how when he's reading a room, he'll see If someone is sort of looking around, looking at the art, whatever, that's when he'll come up and talk to people. He will make sure not to interrupt them when they're in the middle of a conversation or they're, you know, about to take a bite of something because he knows that's just awkward. He may go around and talk to his patrons and try and understand how they could have a better experience, but he's even focused on not doing that when it might annoy them. I agree totally. When you read the book, you're like, man, this sounds terrible. I don't want a bunch of waiters or the maitre d' to like, you know, be all fake nice to me. But when you go to Gramercy Tavern, to a lesser extent, it's true at Shake Shack, but I think it's still true at Shake Shack. But we have to remember that Shake Shack is serving like, you know, comparatively inexpensive burgers, maybe not compared to, I don't know, Arby's or whatever. But these people, the people that are hired at his restaurants, they like see and feel emotion and they are very deft at dealing with like basic, now I sound like some sort of robot, but they're deft at dealing with human beings. Um, they're good, man. And they know when to push, when not to push, when to pull back. And it's really impressive. And you can really feel it. And re- you can really see it when you actually go to one of these restaurants. That's cool. So you mentioned a key term there from the book, enlightened hospitality. That's his whole ethos. What is enlightened hospitality? So I'm not 100% sure about uh, enlightened hospitality and what it specifically means relative to everything else. There probably is some definition somewhere in the books. If you have it, feel free to read it after me. But the the main thing he, he cycles back to constantly is focusing on being hospitable. And it's not just to the customers. It's first to the employees, then to the customers, then to the community, then to the suppliers, and then only after that to the investors. And so that might not even be, you know, the enlightened hospitality thing exactly, but that like he repeats over and over again. And I think it's a really important way to think about your business. It's frankly very different from others that I've seen where you're putting the employees as the number one people to focus on. It feels Japanese to me. Why so? Well, okay. So in in America, right, the idea of putting your investors last as opposed to first is an anathema, if I'm using that word correctly. It just reminds me of uh, Akio Morita's, reminds me of that like contract. Uh, Maybe it's unsaid between a company and the salaried Japanese workers they hire where like, we're like, we're almost giving you a guaranteed lifelong job and Yeah. I don't know. It just feels like an un-American way to do things. And it feels more akin to Japanese, even if it's not exactly like that. Well, I agree with you. I think when we read Akio Morita's book, one thing he emphasized is that it is sometimes important to actually put your employees before your customers. And that's the same thing that Danny Meyer is expressing in this book, is that you can't have happy customers if you don't have happy employees. And so your first step is to have happy employees before you even worry about having happy customers. 
Yeah, he talks about it as being kind of a flywheel and that it explicitly does need to be in this order. I think I would push back on that a little bit. I do think that putting employees first is is probably a really good way to think about it. And it just it, it's hard to mm-hmm. be good to your customers if you don't like each other and you're not being good to each other. So like, I do think that coming first does make sense. I feel like suppliers could potentially come, you know, earlier, depending on the kind of business that you're working in. I don't know, like the, the fact that it needs to be in exact that order seems strange to me. I actually did find the quote now. And so this is, it is what he calls enlightened hospitality. So first it's to the employees, then Mm -hmm. in descending order, our guests, community, suppliers, and our investors. Yeah. And that's on page 109 for people who are following along with the actual book. So enlightened hospitality is his ethos. How does he display it throughout the book? How does he show that he actually follows this ethos at each of his restaurants? Like, what is it that he does that shows that he puts his employees first? What is it that he does that shows he puts his customers before his investors, for example? So he talks about at one point, like kicking a guy out of his restaurant. (laughs) So there's like one example where the guy was just being really rude to his employees and he actually like got punched in the face as he was doing it. Uh, and, you know, if he was putting, you know, guests is the number one thing, he probably would have just put up with that guy's rudeness and offered him a drink and stuff like that. But instead, he, he threw him out of his restaurant. In terms of putting the guests first, there's a lot of examples. And that is what I found maybe most interesting in the book is he just gives a lot of great anecdotes about the way that he puts guests first. So one example is that he asks his managers, I believe it's to three times a day, wow, a customer. So he says that builds into like 10,000 wow moments for the customers across, you know, all of his managers doing it at all of his dis- different restaurants, you know, every day of the year. But the basic point being go above and beyond. So don't just give them a good experience, give them the most memorable experience of their life. And that will become something that they'll tell other people about. And that's sort of how the flywheel works. So let me jump in here because that literally happened to me. So uh, I read his book because I want to become a better manager and I'm thinking to myself, well, a uh, restaurant seems like a tough business and it's a tough business where you have to manage lots of people and he's done very well. So I'm going to read his book about how to be a restaurateur. And then after reading his book, I'm like, okay, why not? I'll go to Gramercy Tavern. Then I go to the restaurant. I tell the manager, hey, I, I read his book. She then takes me into the kitchen like uh, with my wife and just gives me a whole tour of the kitchen. Like tells me, gives me her like personal cell phone number and gives me Danny Meyer's email. And just like, hey, you know, he would love your feedback and all the cool things that, you know, you said, whatever, on Twitter, because I ended up speaking to her about it. And then later, you know, obviously, we're doing this podcast right now because I recommended the book. Um, And I ended up bringing my family and my wife's family there for our reception lunch uh, just prior. So one, they totally do that. They go out of their way to wow customers. And it it seems to work because (laughs) I brought everyone back for a much more expensive meal. One of the examples for me personally is when I went to 11 Madison Park, and this is probably something that everyone gets, is at the end of the meal, they give you like a granola and stuff for like breakfast the next day. So you actually got a second meal out of the meal. And sure, I paid, you know, hundreds of dollars for that meal. So it's obviously negligible in the the scheme of things, Mm -hmm. but it was like a really powerful moment. And I have had that happen at maybe one other fine dining restaurant. But it's funny, it's kind of become like a a thing where now when I don't leave with like a gift after paying for these ridiculous meals, I'm like, oh, they kind of like they didn't go above and beyond. So I I recently went to uh, the chef's table at Brooklyn Fair for my anniversary with my girlfriend and we had this incredible meal. I I would actually put it above 11 Madison Park in terms of just the, the quality of the food itself on that one meal. 
Uh, and the experience was different because you're actually in the the chef's table. You're actually watching the chefs directly making the food right in front of you. And you got to you know shake hands with the chef. But that's everyone's experience as opposed to sort of the special occasion you had with it, uh, Molson. But I left and I think I would still be more impressed with Love of Madison Park overall, even though maybe the food was better in that one place because of, you know, those little touches. I think he's like a bizarre genius of a field that people don't really respect. Why don't you think people respect the field? Because it's like dirty. It's not really if you look at how many like restaurant billionaires, there aren't too many of those. And it's it's like mom and pop. It's a lot of illegal immigrants, frankly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's another key term in the book. One is enlightened hospitality. Another is a 51% employee. What is a 51%? And he calls it a 51 percenter. So what is a 51 percenter? It is my firm conviction that an executive or business owner should pack a team with 51 percenters because training them in the technical aspects will come far more easily. Hiring 51 percenters today will save time and dollars tomorrow. And they're commonly the best recruiters for others with strong emotional skills. Nice people love the idea of working with other nice people. That circles back to what Short was saying about the kind of the flywheel of enlightened hospitality. But what's a 51 percenter? 51 percenter is someone with really strong emotional skills who kind of like has that ability to see emotion, to read a guest face, who knows the perfect time to offer a free dessert or to say, how's your meal going? And the trade-off is technical excellence versus emotional skills. So what he's saying is you, you do need both. But at a lot of places, it's the technical excellence that they really focus on. And that's kind of what I was talking about when you have the sort of hoity-toity off-putting experience at these really high fine dining. It'll just be it'll be so perfect. They'll put the fork exactly where it needs to go and every single plate will be placed at the same time. But they do almost seem like robots or automatons. And what he's saying is instead you have the 51 percent. It's more of the emotional skill than it is the technical excellence. And so they will do that stuff perfectly. The plates will be there, but they'll also, you know, make a joke about, you know, what happened in sports recently or whatever, that they'll actually be real people, not just technically perfect robots. I think we should really belabor this point because this is totally different from almost every other business book we've read in a sense. Like what Danny Meyer is saying in a way is that there isn't a place for Steve Wozniak. Like there isn't a place at his restaurant for like at his restaurants for some guy with amazing technical ability who lacks social skills. Not, you know, I have no idea what Steve Wozniak's social skills are, but you know, he's a 10x engineer. There isn't really a place at his restaurants, according to him, for the 10x chef who doesn't know how to really work with people. Yeah, I think that is quite different from a lot of the other books that we've read. And I think a lot of that has to do with the industry. I would not want a software engineer working on a nuclear power plant who had really great emotional skills, but average technical skills. But maybe I would if I was building, if I was a customer service representative for that software company, perhaps. Check this out. All right. So here's, I'll just read a little bit more. Over time, we can almost always train for technical prowess. We can teach people how to deliver bread or olives, take orders for drinks or present menus, how to describe specials or make recommendations from the wine list or how to explain the cheese selection. And it's straightforward to teach table numbers and seat positions to avoid asking who gets the chicken. Is that true in computer science? I don't think it is. No, it's absolutely. That's about how I was going to respond to that is that, yeah, you can teach somebody how to deliver bread well, as he just said, but you can't necessarily teach just any person how to write great software. That being said, I think the emotional aspect in software is a little bit more important than people give it credit for because that nuclear power plant has 50,000 buttons that are all flashing at once and no one knows what to do is like a real problem that exists in the world right now. 
And it's because it's pure technical engineers that put that together, not design focused people who realized you you should actually make it really easy to shut things down. You you know, like those, those are part of the problem with that industry right now. Couldn't agree with you more, but I I do think that how much of that you want versus technical skills will differ by industry or by role. Definitely. He says training for emotional skills is next to impossible. True or false? Why or why not? I have a strong opinion on this. I think it depends. I think that you can get better at certain things, but I think there are fundamentals that if you don't have any amount of empathy, it's going to be very hard to overcome that. So this goes a little bit back to Trillion Dollar Coach, our third book, where he says to be a good manager, you have to care about people and people who care about people care about people. And that's not really something you can teach somebody to be like. You can't teach somebody to care, really. That's something you might develop over time, I think. I don't think like everyone is frozen in time about how they feel emotionally when they're, when they're 20 or something. I think you can develop and start to care more. But people who really care have that innate quality. I do think that it's hard to teach that. So one of the ways that I think about this, and this is kind of weird, is that people who develop people's skills before they develop technical skills, almost by choice, don't learn the technical skills because the people skills are kind of just a faster, easier way to get ahead in life once you've already got them. So here's the way I think about it. So you're a person, you have people skills, but you don't really know how to build software but you're really good at like selling stuff. You're like, well, you know, why am I going to learn the code when I can just like sell, you know, I can just get to the money so much faster than I Mm. can from, you know, learning from scratch how to code in Python. Whereas the opposite sometimes tends to happen where like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he builds this killer product, but probably at the beginning, he's not, you know, the beginning of founding of Facebook, he's not as good, <laughs> good in quotation marks uh, with people as he is today, because I don't think he's very good today. That was a really bad choice of, of person. Yeah, bad choice, mostly. but you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, obviously, still not great with people. Still not great with people, but for sure, like if you're going to found a company, you're going to hire all those people, you have to become better, right? That's kind of an obligation. Whereas if you're good at people to begin with, you can kind of just outsource some of those technical skills and you don't really need to develop them, but the people skills you really do. Ah, and but I think the key is that the people who are really good with people skills, right? Yes, they can make it really far if they have someone supporting them who has the technical skills or has the money to help them hire the people with the technical skills. Danny Meyer had the money through his family to hire the people with the technical skills. <laughs> what about Adam Newman? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about that business, but he strikes me as someone who lacks operational ability, but like probably has like pretty good people skills and because he seems to be pretty good at raising money. Yeah, for people listening, that's the founder of WeWork, uh, yeah. who is disgraced. Disgraced all the way to the bank. <laughs> disgraced. The disgraced yeah. founder of WeWork. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. You might end up a little bit like Elizabeth Holmes, where um, he was looking like he was, uh, the, she was looking like she would be okay for a little while, and then she got hit with those fraud charges. But back to Danny Meyer. Is this the same person who's responsible for Oscar Meyer Wieners? Or is that someone different? No, that's somebody different. That's a much older company. On page 143, he lists the five core emotional skills of a 51 percenter. They are optimistic warmth, intelligence, work ethic, empathy, self-awareness, and integrity. 
those seem to be so broad. I mean, of course you want an employee that's intelligent, has a great work ethic, great empathy and self-awareness that it almost makes the term meaningless, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I think it is sort of one of those, you know, it when you see it things. So Danny has a couple lists in here that I think are very good and helpful. And then he has some other ones where it's just like, these don't really seem like numbers or lit, you know what I mean? Like, it just feels like it's kind of a free flowing thing that he, he put into a little bit of a framework, but it's not like a real like Misi framework that breaks things down and really makes clear. I don't know if you guys want to talk about this now, but he's got a really interesting one for what she calls the yes criteria for new ventures. Yeah, that is exactly one of the other ones I was thinking of that felt like it was, you know, somewhat useful. Well, some of it was good, but it didn't really feel like it was a real framework either. Like it felt like it was specific to what they're doing more so than like what everyone should do. And then some of them were generically helpful. So anyway, you can, you can read it. and we can. I don't, I don't disagree with that. It, it seems like very focused on like, should I open a new restaurant? <laughs> but uh, I still thought it was pretty good. All right. So these are the yes criteria for new ventures. Does the opportunity fit and enhance our company's overall strategic goals and objectives? Does the opportunity represent a chance to create a business venture that is perceived as groundbreaking, trailblazing, and fresh? Is the timing right for our company's capacity to grow with excellence? Do we at this time believe that we have the capacity to be category leaders within whatever niche niche we are pursuing? Uh, Will our existing businesses benefit and improve? Do we feel excited and passionate about the idea? Are we excited about doing the business in this community? Uh, The context, is it the right fit? The restaurant and our style of doing business, will it be in harmony with its location? And finally, and quite important, you need an in-depth pro forma analysis that convinces us that this is a wise and safe investment. I was paraphrasing, skipping over some sentences to uh, cut down on how long it would take to read that. That was the part that just made me feel like this is such a a weird framework that like point nine is just an in-depth pro form. It's like, well, what that's what I want to hear about, Danny. What do you put into the in-depth pro forma to prove whether it's a wise and sound business? Well, that's boring. To me, I felt like that was obvious. It's just going to do like cash flow analysis. He's going to be like, okay, how many tables can this place fit? Like what's the rent? You know, uh, what are you, what are the margins on the food? Like, that's not what I come to Danny Meyer for. No, but maybe he is. But I want to see that because he does so much different with hospitality. Like, does he operate in the same way on those pro formas? Because because his numbers are probably fairly different. They probably do have a lot more staff per table and all that stuff. And like, how does does he think about those things differently as a result? Uh, Okay, fair enough. Maybe that's the secret sauce. I, you know, for a high priced, famous restaurant with those two things in mind, I thought Gramercy Tavern was pretty reasonably priced, actually, particularly at lunch. It's really hard to think about how anything that's that expensive can be, but they do have incredibly nice ingredients and whatnot. So for what you're getting, I agree. Like it's, it is appropriately priced for the quality Mm -hmm. that you're getting. You don't feel like you're being ripped off at all. Like you, they do those, you know, all the water is complimentary, whatever those nice little touches that do make you feel like, Oh, like this, this is what it is. I I recently went to a fine dining restaurant in Boston, which was great. I had a very good experience, but I felt completely ripped off because it was a New Year's Eve event and they charged for tickets beforehand, which said they included tip and tax. And then you show up and obviously you expect you're going to pay for drinks separately, but then they ended up charging tip and tax on top of it. And they were like, oh, you know, open table messed up the display or whatever. I'm just like, okay, but like you sold me something like, I mean, anyway, I, I, if I really cared, I would have, I would have fought it. I'm sure they would have actually agreed because there was a contract that said it was included, but anyway. 
a lot of the book can feel like a big victory lap for Danny Meyer. Like, oh, <laughs> look, look how great I did. And now, since I did so great, obviously all the things that I think are the right way to run businesses, you should do too. But there are some challenges he came across when launching some of his restaurants, such as getting two-star reviews when he wanted a three-star and he almost cried. But there were other times that there were real challenges. What were some of those challenges that he came across as he was opening some of the restaurants? So it seems like turnover is probably one really big problem. Like in a lot of his restaurants, it seemed like someone quit like a week before it was supposed to open, which does make me wonder a little bit about like Danny's capabilities at like hiring people. I don't know. I mean, again, the people end up being great in the restaurants that I've actually experienced and these people keep leaving like right before. So probably it is that maybe he he has that. He, he talks about it at the beginning that like his first time with Union Square Cafe, he just wanted to be everyone's friend and he wouldn't fire people that were bad. So maybe he has a little bit of like too much empathy where he tries to be nice. And then like right before it's going to open, he's like, no, there's no way this guy is really going to be, you know, the 51 percenter that's going to going to solve what we need. But I think there were at least two or three times where he said like the the general manager or the chef left like right before the restaurant was supposed to open. So that I'm sure caused catastrophes. He struggled a lot with Tabla, the Indian restaurant. And Kovac, you also noted that like Blue Smoke is not a very well rated. Well, it's interesting because it seems to have expanded. This book's from 2006. We're recording this in 2020. In those 14 years, there seems to be two more Blue Smoke locations that opened in New York City. But all three of them on Yelp, at least, are rated three or three and a half stars, which for Yelp is a low rating. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah. But that obviously, if they're expanding and they're still around all these years later, they must be profitable and they they must be doing well for, for the group. So I don't know what that means. I mean, I, I personally do put a lot of stock in Yelp reviews. I found them to be pretty accurate over the years. Uh, and he himself admits that there were complaints about it not being authentic barbecue or uh, it not really fitting into New York City and things like that when it first came out and complaints about the food. He mentioned that in the book, that there were real complaints about the food during the first few months after it opened. But the fact that it still has such low ratings on Yelp 20 years later, I don't know what that means because obviously they must be profitable. So I've been to Blue Smoke and it is a little expensive for barbecue. And I think that's probably why it has a three and a half star rating. You know, like it's pretty good barbecue. It's kind of expensive. It's New York. It's a nice experience. They do a good job with the, you know, the, the service is honestly much better than you would expect in a barbecue place. But I think probably people just don't want to pay very much money for barbecue or they want, you know, they want to spend, you know, $20 and they end up spending 35 there or something. And they just feel like, okay, well, it was pretty good, but it's, you know, I wasn't expecting that. How many of the reviews are like people from like St. Louis or Texas or South Carolina or whatever, who like know the best barbecue place ever and then go there? I don't know. There's hundreds of reviews. So, you know, I can't really give you that summary. Well, I'm a Texan and I do know the best barbecue. And I said the barbecue is pretty good. It's not the best barbecue by any means. Anyway, so he had some challenges opening Blue Smoke, opening Tabla, both areas that he was not well versed in, I think, as he was in like French and Italian fine dining, which was infused in his other restaurants. Right. Uh, right. So, I mean, he he personally spent a lot of his childhood kind of traveling through the countryside of France and Italy. And in college, he worked there and he did some of his tour before he opened his first restaurants going through Italy and France. So I think he really understood how to create a great French or Italian inspired experience. But maybe he personally didn't know how to make a great Indian experience. He had to rely on other people more. Maybe same thing with barbecue, although he's from St. Louis, Missouri, which is known for its barbecue too. But it's hard to do fine dining for certain classes of foods, I think, because the customer goes in there expecting it to be cheap. How many fine dining Mexican places do you know of to some extent that applies to Indian Chinese food? 
they can apply this to barbecue too. I'm not yeah. saying that was the problem. I've never been to Tabla, but yeah, it just seems tough. So he had trouble sometimes going into new genres, it seems like. He had trouble sometimes keeping people right before an opening. Maybe there was too much pressure. Another problem he had was with, I think, handling criticism, honestly. The fact that he would spend so much of his book talking about restaurant reviews, and I know restaurant reviews are obviously very important in the restaurant industry, but it came across to me as a little bit thin-skinned. I wonder if the two of you felt that way too. I, well, so I can relate to this, right? Like literally I I sell toys on Amazon and if Uh we get a one star review, it's not even about like me being thin skinned. Like it can destroy sales on that product completely. And I don't, I wouldn't say I get like, you know, butthurt or something like that about it. And usually the customer is right. Maybe over 95% of the time when we get a customer complaint, it's because we did botch something, but uh, yeah, it can just have a tremendous effect on your business. And I feel like it probably messes with the morale of the people who are working there. Uh, one of the, his secrets, I think, is that he's in the press all the time. He's famous. And he mentions this in the book. And because of that, he's able to attract better people than he would be able to otherwise at lower salaries. And I don't think that those people, you know, they're obviously not as proud to be working at a two-star restaurant versus a three-star restaurant. And, and you know, like, you hear stories about chefs literally committing suicide because their restaurant went from three stars to two or they didn't get the stars that they wanted with the Michelin Guide. So I'm not sure if it's thin skin. I think it's just uh, a function of the industry. I do agree that the Frank Bruni article felt a little bit weird, though, too, because he then just like talks about how they got like every other winning, you know, review, like whatever. They got the James Beard Award for best new restaurant in America. But like he spent like a really long time talking about the Frank Prudy like two star as opposed to the best new restaurant in America award is like part of a list of 15 other awards the restaurant earned that year of being the best new restaurant in America from all these incredibly prestigious publications. But probably the New York Times was the first one that came out and the guy had been there 11 times and whatever. There was you know interesting stories to tell. So that's why he made it a much bigger story. But I did kind of feel like that was a little bit of a like weird like, OK, like two stars for like a brand new restaurant is not like bad thing in New York. It's Yes, you would like to be three, but it's very, very rare for a new restaurant to get it. And actually what Danny said is just that he wished Frank would have acknowledged that, that like he he did understand it was a two-star restaurant because it was brand new, but he wished that critics would be sort of forward thinking too. And uh, like, I guess, uh, wine critics will say, you know, obviously this wine's not good yet, but, you know, years from now it will have developed into, you know, a really high quality thing. That's just not what restaurant critics do. They don't, they don't, they don't predict the future. Is this analogous to what Steve Jobs and Apple were somewhat famous for doing? Like, I think if if Steve Jobs disagreed with a particular review of an Apple Apple product or, you know, there were rumors of them denying press passes to certain people in the industry. And in the background is Danny Meyer just thinking, like, I'm just going to, like, drag this dude through the mud (laughs) just to send a message to everyone else who thinks about giving me a two star. I think to the contrary, he's like actually trying to do anything he can to get great reviews. Like he said at the beginning, he tried to be so ethical, he wouldn't give away free meals to critics. And then one time he gave a free meal to a critic, he mentions it in there, and then he got a great review. And then he's like, then I started giving free meals to critics. So I think he, he's willing to glad hand and do whatever it takes to get good restaurant reviews. That's, that's the impression I got. I don't know. Just I can't talk about this without thinking about our own experience. Like everyone in my industry cheats and does weird things for reviews and we don't. And it's tough. Like if you own a restaurant and you know that every other 
hoity-toity restaurants giving free meals or like, you know, paying money under the table. And I'm sure that stuff happens all the time to guys who write reviews. Then it's you're you're constantly tempted to engage in that yourself. Fair enough. So what are some other key takeaways from this book? You said the word pressure. And that reminded me of this uh, quote that he had in the book that I really liked. He said that the key to management is three things, constant, gentle pressure. And he said that he was uh, much better at the first two than he was at the third. He kind of had to learn how to do that. I thought that was great too. The constant gentle pressure thing, I think is exactly what you do need to do as a manager. They have uh, this concept now of radical candor, which is about... uh, I'm going to forget the exact terminology that they use, but it's basically challenging directly while caring genuinely. And so it's that you're giving someone like a real challenge that does push them forward, but that you actually are on their side. You want them to win. You're not, you know, attacking them by giving them this challenge. You're opening them up to a great opportunity. And so like by having that you know, challenging mentality, but the caring mentality at the same time. I think I think that those are like really important in any kind of management relationship. And I think I've been really lucky with my most recent boss to to genuinely have had that. And it's very different from some prior bosses I've had where I think I I've always had well, my first job I guess wasn't that challenging, but my my job before was very challenging, but I think I had much less of the like deeply caring relationship. I didn't really notice that at all. And I don't, you know, need to be best friends with my boss by any means. And I'm I'm not with my current one either, but you can just the way that she presents opportunities and whatnot are clearly showing that I'm going to be able to grow, do something better for the business, but also that like she's on my side. Meyer has a quote from this uh, about this in the book. Most importantly, you have to be comfortable with holding people accountable to high standards while letting them hold onto their own dignity. That concept of radical candor, that reminds me of... Bill Campbell in Trillion Dollar Coach, episode three of our podcast. He also was was about, I think, a very similar approach to delivering feedback. So thinking about the book as a whole, who would you recommend it to? And before I even ask that, do you recommend this book? It sounds like both of you do, but but would you recommend the book and who would you recommend it to? So I recommended it to someone who I thought didn't have a good grasp <laughs> they didn't have good like people management skills and earlier today he he told me hey i got through the first like third of this book and i just had to put it down because like i don't want to hear about like your staff and all that stuff like shut up danny meyer that was kind of like my first intuition i was like oh anyone can read this book and just like understand how to like care and feel about people but i, I guess maybe this ties back to our earlier conversation where Danny Meyer said that it's impossible to teach people how to like be empathetic and stuff like that. And maybe it is impossible. But so uh, if it's not impossible, I would recommend it to people who are looking to build their soft skills in management, because that's as important as building your technical skills in management, which uh, we talked a lot about in our first episode of this podcast with high output management with Andy Grove. Yeah, same. I honestly have been saying I think this is one of the best books that we've read for the club, but I heard from from you that you didn't like it. You thought it was one of the worst books that we've we've had, which is is really interesting to me. I think we've generally like mostly agreed on on a lot of the books. So the fact that we had such differing opinions makes me think maybe caring a lot about food actually is important to really enjoying this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's possible. I'm a big food guy. 
Well, yeah, I'm going to be the odd one out here. I did not enjoy this book that much. I do enjoy food, <laughs> I, but I think the main reason that I didn't enjoy the book is that I couldn't relate to the main character, and that is Danny Meyer. I found him in a sphere that just is so foreign to me, both his upbringing. He was, came from a very wealthy family, and he had every advantage growing up. And he's into, even growing up, like fine wines, and he's into the French countryside, and he's into some very fancy restaurants, and he's into foie gras. And these are all things that I can't relate to. And they're not just infused in the first few chapters. Obviously, they relate to his businesses, and they are infused in every chapter of the book. And so while I didn't think any of the advice in the book was bad, it made sense. I thought it was a very specific book. I thought it was a book really about the hospitality industry, as it should be. That's what he's an expert in. But the type of businesses that I'm interested in or just interested in learning about are not necessarily the restaurant industry. And so if you're like me and you have no interest in the restaurant industry and you don't know that much about wine and you do cannot really relate to somebody whose family lent them hundreds of thousands of dollars to start their first restaurant, then maybe you won't enjoy this book either. Yeah. And that comes across in the the reviews on Goodreads and whatnot a lot. It does seem like a lot of people are offended by the $350,000 loan. They even inflate it to 500 for some reason in like the top review on Goodreads. But I think that is totally fair. I have not, you know, I did grow up in a relatively privileged family, but certainly haven't gotten, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to start a business or anything. I certainly cannot relate to Danny in terms of like going to Italy every weekend in college because whatever, I had $44 interliner tickets and all of that. But I, I did really enjoy the story, even though I couldn't relate to it. I thought it was just very well written uh, description of this very crazy childhood that he led. So I don't know. I, I really enjoyed that part, but I think that it is totally accurate that a lot of people found it very off-putting to hear about his privileged upbringing. And I think it's totally fair to say like, this is a story of like the scion of two super wealthy family families who made it. And like, maybe that's a big part of it is, you know, having a lot of money and support from your family allows you to go off and take the risk of starting this business. And a lot of people aren't put in that same position. But I think regardless of that, if you are going to work with a lot of people, understanding the the hospitality dynamics that he talks about, I think are very helpful, regardless of what your you know background are. Yeah, I think it's a well-written book. Don't get me wrong. And I think I'm not an expert in the hospitality industry, but what he's, everything he wrote makes sense. And I think if you're in the hospitality industry, this is a book you should read. But if you're not interested in the hospitality industry and you're not interested in kind of the things that go along with fine dining, uh, then you probably might find this book a bit boring, honestly. But it's not a strike against him. I mean, he can't help where he was born or the industry that he works in and that he's writing about. It's just that I don't think this is a book of mass appeal in the same way some of the other business books that we've read are. I don't think like, yeah, he had a lot of advantages in life, but so did his dad, right? And in the book and his dad was constantly failing. And I I don't think that even if you get a $350,000 loan from your grandpa Irving, the odds are you're still going to fail. And I, I still think his accomplishments are really, really impressive because of how difficult of an industry it is. And I guess the other thing, even if you're not in fine dining, if there's some way you can figure out how to relate to his management advice anyways, I still think it's a good book. Well, I feel like you can get a lot of that similar advice from the Bill Campbell book. And ironically, the Bill Campbell book, which is Trillion Dollar Coach, episode three of our podcast, is much worse written. It's not as well written a book. but 
it relates the same information about caring about people and showing you care about people in a management setting in a way that's not so deeply tied to just one industry. Is there anything else about the book that you want to address that we didn't get around to? So the one thing that I talked about earlier that about a good framework that I hadn't actually mentioned was the five A's for effectively addressing mistakes. So it's awareness. Many mistakes go unaddressed because no one is even aware they happened. Acknowledgement. Our server had an accident and we are going to prepare a new plate for you as quickly as possible. Apology. I am so sorry this happened to you. Alibis are not one of the five A's. It is not appropriate or useful to make excuses. We're short-staffed. Action. Please enjoy this for now. We'll have your fresh order out in just a few minutes. Say what you're going to do to make amends, then follow through. And additional generosity. Unless the mistake had to do with slow timing, I would instruct my staff to send out something additional. So I thought this was actually a really good framework, the awareness, acknowledgement, apology, action, additional generosity, because just running my software team will have bugs and things like that. And honestly, I think I'm going to use it to deal with that. Maybe not. I'm not sure how additional generosity is necessarily going to make sense in that in that space, but the, the first four for sure. And I think in the hospitality space, that additional generosity is super valuable. So he goes into a lot more detail on writing the final chapter, which I thought was a really good concept in any kind of business where you have repeat customers, which was that if you make a mistake, you do, you really go above and beyond. You don't just resolve it to like an equal thing for what the problem was, but you go way beyond. And I think that that is really interesting. And he tells the story of every time he's done that, that story just gets repeated over and over again. And so instead of this like, you know, negative story about the experience at the restaurant, it becomes there was the negative experience and then they did this completely amazing thing and it becomes that story that they tell over and over again. It becomes sort of like viral marketing for your restaurant that, you know, they just go above and beyond. And so that that whole framework was great. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's really great. I'm going to put that in our customer service SOPs. But actually part of our SOP at the toy company when we're doing customer service is if we really mess up, I actually personally call the customer and I'll, I'll apologize and, you know, lay things out. I uh, got to be fair, though, at his restaurant, uh, when I did that reception lunch, uh, they charged me for a dinner. So it was like a dinner times 10. And I was really pissed. And the guy did not do many of those A's. And I was like, dude, Danny Meyer, you got to get rid of this, bro. <laughs> okay. All right. So next month, we'll be reading Founders at Work, Stories of Startups Early Days by Jessica Livingston. It includes interviews with the founders of some of Silicon Valley's best-known companies like Yahoo, Apple, Adobe. Really looking forward to that. For our listeners, how can they get in touch with the two of you? And is there anything you want to plug? I'm David Short. You can follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. I'm uh, Molson Hart. Molson like the beer. You can find me on Twitter, Molson underscore Hart. And I'm David Kopeck. You can find me on Twitter at Dave Kopeck. That's D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. I'll plug that we're looking for an assistant professor of computer science at Champlain College. So if you know somebody in the market looking for a new career or new job, then please send them our way. So don't forget to like us on your podcast player of choice. That really helps us with our ratings. That really helps more people find out about the podcast whether that's on Overcast, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, whether that's on Spotify, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. And we'll see you next month.